Well, God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. And take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. What we're going to look at today is that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, we read, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. To understand God's kingdom, we must understand that it is not accessible through flesh and blood. God is spirit, and as such, the spiritual world he reigns is a spiritual domain. Therefore, without receiving God's spirit, heaven will remain completely out of reach. Because God has deemed that fleshly corruption cannot share with spiritual incorruption. This is an established biblical truth that is supported throughout the scriptures. It is beyond reasonable debate simply because it is taught so frequently and so consistently in God's word that those of the flesh, because of their sinful condition, are unfit for entrance into heaven. Unrenewed man, in his natural and carnal state, therefore cannot enter into God's holy world. Hence, not only will sin ruin men's lives on earth and create here present misery, but it will also prohibit entrance into God's heavenly kingdom. The physical body that the natural man is born with cannot transcend into the glory which is heaven. This is why the scriptures reveal that Jesus, the Son of God, must change the bodies of those who believe upon him so that they can become vessels fit for heaven's glory. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, we read, For our conversation or our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now verse 21, Who, Christ, shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. The believer's citizenship or their conversation is in heaven. This means that through faith in God's Son, their new world is the spiritual world of God. See, though Christians have promised by God that heaven is theirs, still they need a means by which they are made fit for heavenly entrance. It is here that the Son of God and His divine power is needed who shall change our vile body. The vile body spoken of is our physical human body made of the dust of the earth. It is much lower in form than heavenly bodies and marred with many weaknesses and frailties. The Greek word is taponosis and is defined as lowliness, humiliation. The word is derived from tapano, which is defined as low line, lowly, lowly in spirit. The sense is that this earthly body of humiliation, which is markably lower in form than heavenly bodies, must be changed in order for heaven to be entered. Man's vile earthly body must also be so transformed by Christ's power that it becomes fashioned like unto Christ's glorious resurrected body. Hence, once someone believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and receives the gift of the Holy Spirit through him. Then there is the future and reliable hope that Christ shall change the believer's body of humiliation into a body of celestial glory like unto Christ's own. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse uh, 44 now. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Barnes on Philippians 3, 21. That it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Greek, the body of his glory. That is, the body which he had in his glorified state. What change the body of the Redeemer underwent when he ascended to heaven, we are not informed. Nor do we know what is the nature, size, appearance, or form of the body which he now has. It is certain that it is adapted to the glorious world where he dwells, that it has none of the infirmities to which it was liable when here, that it is not subject as here to pain or death, that it is not sustained in the same manner. The body of Christ in heaven is of the same nature as the bodies of the saints will be in the resurrection, and which the apostles call spiritual bodies. Uh, and it doubtless accompanied with all the circumstances of splendor and glory, which are appropriate to the Son of God. The idea here is that it is the object of the desire and anticipation of the Christian to be made just like Christ in all things. He desires to resemble him in moral character here and to be like him in heaven. Nothing else will satisfy him but such conformity to the Son of God, and when he shall resemble him in all things, the wishes of his soul will be all be met and fulfilled. End quote. To enter God's spiritual kingdom then, Jesus, the Son of God, who was crucified and raised to life by God, must fashion and transform the vile, lowly, and earthly physical bodies of those who have believed upon himself to then resemble his own glorious resurrected body. This miracle, which Jesus promises to perform on all who have made him their Lord, shall be at that time the greatest miracle he has yet to demonstrate. In other words, the Lord Jesus is far from done in displaying the glorious and heavenly power given to him by God. And like the caterpillar's transformation into a butterfly, where one form is replaced by another, much more glorious form, so shall the Son of God change our vile human bodies to be like unto His own glorious spiritual body, a body first made for the earth, transformed by Christ's power to then be fit for heaven. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Through Christ's power, he shall make his people fit for heaven. See, it will also not be until the believer is made like Christ that he shall be able to also totally see Christ as he is. Bodily transformation is needed 
so that even the great glory of the Savior can be seen and appreciated. Like the blind man whose eyes Jesus opened, so shall we also need Christ's power to transform us, so that we shall be enabled to see the Lord as He truly is, teaching us that for true and unobstructed spiritual sight, then a new spiritual body with new spiritual sight must be provided. Consequently, not only can men not enter heaven in their physical present state, but they also will remain unable to actually see the Lord Jesus as He really is. Until then, they are made like Him. Spiritual power, therefore, will be needed and shall be exerted so that the world above may be seen, experienced, and entered. Hence, it remains impossible for any to truly see Christ until they are made by Christ's power like Him. True religion, therefore, must possess the humility to realize that our earthly and sinful bodies are unfit for heaven and that only by Jesus' divine power and bodily transformation can we enter heaven. God's Word, therefore, teaching us that we are wholly dependent upon God and His Son to make us capable for entering heaven. So that where a proud man refuses to rely on God and His power for anything, a believing man knows that heaven is unattainable if he does not. Thus, wherever true faith is, there will be an admission that only by God's power can we be first transformed and then transported into heaven. To then live in God's presence forever will take a body capable for such an existence. Yet there is no reliable chance nor hope of obtaining a spiritual body from God until first a man receives God's Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit is the seal that spiritual sonship is ours and heavenly inheritance will be waiting for us as well. The body that men inherit from their physical birth is a perishable body from the beginning. 1 Peter 1.23 Being born again, not of corruptible seed, and that's in reference to that first body, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. This corruptible seed of the fleshly body has no hope of sustaining the soul beyond a few short years. The body of man, as we know it today, can only house physical life for a very limited time. Thus, even at birth, death is just a few short steps away for those born only of the flesh. For any then to have hope of heaven and eternal life is promised, a completely different nature must be given to them. The scriptures refer to this as the new birth, whereby God imparts and implants His own divine nature into His newly adopted children. It is this truth of needing to be born again that Jesus instructed Nicodemus in. And in John chapter 3, verse 1, we read, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This same man came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest 
except God be with him. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, or truthfully, truthfully, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus came to Jesus with the belief that Jesus could not have performed the miracles that he did without God being with him. Nicodemus, therefore, rightly concluded that the miracles that Christ performed required that God was with Christ. This shows us the beginning of Nicodemus' faith. As until men realize the divinity connected to Christ, they cannot be taught revelation concerning the spiritual world. Because also Nicodemus had evidenced faith in Christ, that he was from God, this allowed our Lord to begin instructing this ruler of the Jews as to what was necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Hence, Jesus took Nicodemus' faith that he was of God to then reveal the great truth that to enter heaven, all men, even devout religious Jews like himself, must be born again. See, it makes no difference your level in religion or even how versed you are in Scripture. If you lack the Spirit of God within yourself, a man can be a religious leader like Nicodemus was or a deacon in a church or even a pastor in a pulpit. Yet if he remains only flesh and blood and has not been born from above, then heaven shall not be his. What a man or woman is therefore in the flesh makes no difference to God unless they are humble enough to realize that mere fleshly birth is unfit for entering God's eternal kingdom. Benson on John 3, 3. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, I declare it with the utmost solemnity as a truth of the highest importance that whatever great privileges any man may inherit by his natural birth or education or church fellowship or by the place he occupies or the rank he holds in civil or religious society or how exact and strict soever he may be in ceremonial observances. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see, cannot even have just views of, much less can he enjoy the kingdom of God on earth or in heaven, can neither be a true member of the church militant nor enter into the church triumphant, nor will thy knowing and acknowledging that I am a teacher come from God avail thee unless thou experience this second birth, end quote. It is therefore not enough to be born solely into this physical world and think that heaven is attainable. The realm of heaven also having much higher restrictions than merely religious education. The separation between earthly things and spiritual things is far greater than most foolishly suppose. As men must become sons of God through spiritual birth given to them by God before either salvation or eternal life may be theirs. There is no compromising on this solemn truth. God is spirit, and the kingdom of God, which he reigns, is spiritual in nature. So that without receiving God's holy nature, those born of the flesh will remain completely estranged 
from heaven. To not believe this clear truth is to remove all hope of eternal life. Verse 4 now in John. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus, as a natural man who lacked both the spirit and perception of spiritual things, could not initially understand the concept of spiritual birth, teaching us that those of the flesh have no real perception of spiritual things. It is also common among carnal men, even if they are ranked in religion, to know nothing of the true path to heaven. So that just because a man may be religious does not mean he knows anything of what is really necessary to enter God's heavenly kingdom. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. But the natural man, and this is the man without the Spirit of God, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. To the natural man, and one to whom God's Spirit has not been given, spiritual truths are very confusing. Unequipped for heavenly revelations, he will fail in understanding not only God, but also the entire spiritual world of God. Because the only way that a man born merely of the flesh can try and grasp God is through his mind and mental capabilities. Yet this will prove impossible simply because spiritual things like the new birth can only be discerned and understood through the Spirit. Ellicott on 1 Corinthians 2.14. Natural, that is literally, that part of our nature which we call the mind. And it signifies that man in whom pure intellectual reason and the merely natural affections predominate. Now such a one cannot grasp spiritual truth any more than the physical nature which is made to discern physical things can grasp intellectual things. Spiritual truth appeals to the spirit of the man and therefore is intelligible only to those who are spiritual in whom the pneuma is not dominant but quickened by the holy pneuma. The spirit of God thus will be needed before any man can be truly initiated into spiritual realities beyond his extremely limited physical understanding. Verse 5 now. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. There's been much controversy through the years on the meaning of this verse, whether men must be baptized with both water and the Spirit to be saved. Suffice to say, in my view, the clearest understanding of this verse is found in Poole's commentary. Poole on this verse. Our Savior instructing a Pharisee, to whom the prophetical writings were known, expressly uses these two words, and in the same order as they are all set down there, first water and then the Spirit, that the latter might interpret the former. For water and the Spirit, by usual figure, when two words are employed to signify the same thing signify spiritual water. That is, 
His divine grace in renewing the soul, as when the apostle says, in demonstration of the spirit and of power, to signify the powerful spirit. Thus John the Baptist foretold of Christ that he should baptize with the Holy Ghost and fire, that is, with the spirit, that as the force and efficacy of fire to refine us from our dross and corruptions. Thus, our Savior plainly instructs Nicodemus of the absolute necessity of an inward spiritual change and renovation, thereby showing the inefficacy of all the legal washings and sprinklings that could not purify and make white one soul, which were of high value among the Jews. Entering into the kingdom of God is of the same import and sense with seeing the kingdom of God. Uh, That is, without regeneration, no man can truly be joined with the society of the church of God, nor partake of the celestial privileges and benefits belonging to it here and hereafter, end quote. The Holy Spirit is referred to in Scripture as relating to both water and fire, which are both forms of purifying agents. And now in Numbers 31, 23, everything that may abide the fire, you shall make it go through the fire, and it shall be clean. Nevertheless, it shall be purified with the water of separation. And all that abideth not the fire, you shall make go through the water. Symbolically then, the physical elements of fire and water and their ability to cleanse and purify on the earth, God likens to what the Holy Spirit shall do. So that unless men are cleansed with the Holy Spirit, they shall remain too unclean for heaven. Jesus also taught that John's baptism of water would be replaced by his own baptism, which would consist of sanctifying men by giving them the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4 now, And being assembled together with them, commanded them, this is Christ speaking, that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, you have heard of me, again Christ speaking, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. John's baptism of water was a precursor of the Holy Spirit that Christ's baptism would bring. John also, early in his ministry, spoke of this future spiritual baptism of Christ as he made reference to it as being baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire, Matthew 3.11. I indeed, John speaking now, baptize you with the water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He, Christ, shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Benson on this verse. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He shall not only administer the outward element or sign to his disciples, but the thing signified thereby the gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit, which in their operations and effects are like fire, enlightening, quickening, and purifying men's souls and kindling therein pious and devout affections, inflaming their hearts with love to God and all mankind, 
and with a degree of zeal for His glory and the salvation of sinners, which all the waters of difficulty and danger of persecution and tribulation, which they may be called to pass through, shall not be able to quench. And this baptism of fire He will communicate in so abundant a measure that ye shall seem to be overflowed therewith, end quote. Water baptism was a sign of repentance through men coming to confess their sins, Matthew 3, 6, and were baptized of John in the Jordan, confessing their sins. John's baptism of water, primarily aimed at preparing men for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus alone could perform. This baptism is a completely spiritual baptism, whereby through the power of the Holy Spirit, men are made fit for heaven. Later in Acts, we see Christ's disciples being baptized with this baptism of the Holy Spirit, evidenced by the supernatural event of cloven tongues of fire coming on each of the apostles who received the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, the apostles, were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Gilon, Acts 2, 3. Through this baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire, the apostles became more knowing and had a greater understanding of the mysteries of the gospel and were more qualified to preach it to people of all nations and languages. The Holy Spirit in His gifts and graces is compared to fire because of its purity, light, and heat, as well as consuming nature. The Spirit sanctifies and makes man pure and holy, purges from the dross of sin, error, and superstition, and enlightens the minds of men, and gives them knowledge of divine and spiritual things, and fills them with zeal and fervor for the glory of God and Christ, and the good of His church and interest, and for the doctrines and ordinance of the gospel, as well as fortifies them against their enemies, whom he consumes, according to Zechariah 2.5, a passage of Scripture the Jews make use of in an uncommon sense. For they say that as Jerusalem was destroyed by fire, by fire it shall be built again, as it is said in Zechariah 2.5. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about. The pouring forth of the Spirit upon the apostles in this form of cloven tongues as a fire, was indeed the means of rebuilding Jerusalem in a spiritual sense, or of founding the gospel church state in the world, end quote. For those born through Christ's Holy Spirit's baptism, a holy and different mind shall be produced within them, Ezekiel 36, 26. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit, once it enters into men's hearts, will change them. 
And only when men receive this heavenly nature can those born in sin have their hearts be changed by God. No longer ruled by the lust of the flesh, a man who has received God's Spirit will live his life seeking to do the will of God. Now changed by God's grace, a completely new heart is implanted. This is the new birth, and this is what has to happen to enter heaven. For without men's hearts being changed through the influence of the Holy Spirit, they will remain unfit for heaven. Verse 6 now of John. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, Christ said, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The NIV translation has, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. The New Living Translation has, Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. And now the contemporary English version, Humans give life to their children, yet only God's Spirit can change you into a child of God. Just as men can only pass on their fleshly life to their children, so also can only God create sons of God by imparting to them His Spirit. Hence, not until men are born again of God's spiritual nature can they be made fit for God's spiritual kingdom. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit is referred to as a spirit of adoption because it both proves and provides adoption. Heaven is therefore for God's sons, and every son who has been adopted into God's family will be given the Spirit of God as a witness to both himself and the world of his spiritual sonship. The Holy Spirit's presence will so influence a sinner's heart that his new main desire for living is to please God. True children of God, therefore, shall prove their adoption into the spiritual realm by desiring and longing for spiritual things. So that after receiving God's Spirit, a hunger for God and the things of God will be the driving force in their life. And since they have been made God's sons, movement toward the kingdom of God will begin. Knowing they are now God's, they cry, Abba, Father. Barnes on Romans 8.15. Abba, the word is Chaldean, means Father. Why the apostles repeat the word in a different language is not known. The Syriac reads it, by which we call the Father, our Father. It is probable that the repetition here denotes merely intensity and is designed to denote the interest with which a Christian dwells on the name in the spirit of an affectionate, tender child. It is not unusual to repeat such terms of affection. This is evidence of piety that is easily applied. He that can, in sincerity and with ardent affection, apply this term to God, addressing him with a filial spirit, as a, his father, has the spirit of a Christian. Every child of God has a spirit, and he that has it not is a stranger to piety." End quote. The true Christian thus who has received God's spirit will know that and shall express that God is their father. Hence, 
whether religious and unsaved, know God only as God. God spiritually birthed children, know the Lord as their Father. The possession of the Christ Spirit within gives them the confidence to know that they are now a part of God's heavenly family. And as such, they have the solid hope that also, because of the Spirit, they shall be transformed to enter God's heavenly kingdom through God's Son changing their body to be like His own, simply because flesh and blood cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen.